Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Christian Sager. Robert, our last episode, we were talking about samurai swords, and I neglected to bring up one of my favorite aspects of that historical Japanese culture, sort of tied into samurai swords. Do you remember uh, ever seeing a netsuke before? They're these little uh, carved objects that would be in different shapes, and you would use them. Uh, essentially, they had like a hole through them that you would use to tie strings like uh, for purses and things like that that you would hang from a sash or a belt. Yeah, yeah, I believe I've seen these. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've got one that's like a a little cat. It's an anthropomorphic cat that's wearing a robe, and it's supposed to be like a mythical figure of this sort of like cat creature transforming itself so it looks like a woman and tricking people. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I got this at the Peabody Essex Museum in Salem, Massachusetts. They have this amazing uh, collection of, of Asian artifacts, but also just, um, marine stuff. Basically the, the gist is that, um, sailors who are from the area would bring all of these things back after their journeys around the world. And they eventually went into the PBD Essex Museum. So you can see all of this really cool historical material there. But I, I had this Netsuke. It sits on my desk as I'm working on episodes like this one. Mm-hmm. And I kind of wonder, like, is there something, inherently weird about me you know uh fetishizing this and it mine's not a historical netsuke it's like mm-hmm. a mass-produced one that you get at the gift shop or whatever right. but there's something kind of odd about me incorporating that into my i don't know artistic uh, aesthetic my setup of my desk right you know it's next to literally a a, a plastic sculpture of a xenomorph that <laughs> ec steiner gave me for my birthday you know mm-hmm. so it's like it's not like I'm only into Japanese uh, historical aesthetics. Well, this, this is an interesting question because, uh, I mean, obviously we're talking about the idea of cultural appropriation today. And I think we're more and more, uh, we're, we're forced to ask these questions about our lives and the things in our lives, the physical objects as well as the ideas. I, I like what you said about the sailors. Uh, right. Venturing out into the world and returning home with these Essentially knickknacks and, uh, and, and artifacts. And I mean, our, our lives are kind of like that. We, we travel around, we yeah. experience new places, new ideas, and we end up incorporating those ideas into our own worldview, into our own sense of self. Uh, we end up bringing, um, artifacts into our home and our homes become reflections of our, of our interests and our travels and our experience. Yeah. Yeah. And that's how I, think about it. I don't just like, it's not like a, a just collection of random items that I just throw on my desk or something. You know what I mean? Right. Um, although, you know, obviously there's certain things that I will, that stay on the desk and other things that go in a box somewhere. But yeah, I, I don't know. It's strange. Like the alien for some reason is fine. Mm-hmm. Cause that's like American culture. But there's or, a, I, or is it Swiss culture? Oh, right. Exactly. <laughs> That's true. Based on our, our Hans Rudi Giger episode. There's also uh, I have a, a statue of Ganesh on mm-hmm. my desk as well. Uh, the Hindu god of removing obstacles. Oh, yeah. Well, I have yeah, I have a Ganesh in my pocket. I forgot about that. Really? I always I always carry a Ganesh with me. Yeah. So we're kind of laying out some of the details of our own um, our own homes, our, our own sense of selves. Self, and I imagine everyone listening, you're probably doing the same thing. You're thinking about, all right, what, what items are on my person? 
uh, are in my house and just in my mind? And from what cultures do those things arise? Yeah, and there's probably uh, some of you, too, who are having a reflex that I think is pretty common in Western culture, which is like, well, what would be wrong about that? You know, there's a, there's sort of an immediate defensiveness. Uh, mm-hmm. And we're going to talk a little bit about that today as well. Like, you know, basically we're looking at cultural appropriation and then we're going to look at examples that are positive and negative of it. But then look at the arguments for and against it because there's been plenty. Like, yeah. let me tell you, this is an episode that there was uh, no lack of research. There was plenty of stuff out there to incorporate into the literature. And at the end of this episode, we are not going to have this is not one of those episodes where we're going to have a you know a bullet list of what something is. Yeah. We're hopefully going to provide you with some additional tools to evaluate uh, your own life, your own sense of culture, to know what sort of the arguments are uh, on both sides. We are also not going to do an exhaustive examination of every right. uh, form of uh, alleged cultural uh, appropriation uh, out there, because, I mean, you get into, say, the music genre, the fashion genre. And there's so many different examples that pop up, mm-hmm. uh, and, and many of them are specialized, and they have their, their arguments on both sides in many cases. I can think of one example off the top of my head that I came up in a bunch of the articles, but I didn't include it here. Uh, the singer Selena Gomez apparently mm-hmm. wore a, a bindi at one point, like a music video or maybe a live performance or mm-hmm. something like that, and she was criticized for it. And I was just like, uh, I don't feel like this really fits into the discussion that Robert and I are going to have. That is probably, for some of you, like one of the first examples that comes to mind. Right. Likewise, I don't think we, we're going to talk a whole lot about uh, hip hop culture and it's yeah. uh, and, and it's and, and how it is treated in uh, in American culture. But that certainly is a huge area of discussion as well. Mm-hmm. Now, I guess the first thing we need to do is just say, what is cultural appropriation? And that really that really splits into two questions here. What what is cultural appropriation and then what does it consists of? So the first question is a little easier. Broadly, and I mean broadly speaking, we're talking about the adoption or use of the elements of one culture by members of another culture. But of course, that that again, that's extremely broad because this sort of cultural exchange has been going on uh, as long as human society has experienced a convergence of cultures. Uh, the cat's kind of out of the bag in terms of keeping uh, most global cultures entirely pure for a variety of reasons. Mm-hmm. Now, we'll get on into a lot of this as we progress, but it should come as no surprise that uh, there are plenty of, of individuals out there who prefer the term cultural misappropriation. So it's not merely the fact that one culture is adopting or using elements of another culture. It's that they're doing so in a way that is dishonest or harmful insensitive or crass or plays on some uh, some larger inequity. Yeah, there were actually arguments made in some of the articles that I read for this that essentially were like there's a linguistic problem at hand here, a semantics mm-hmm. issue that cultural appropriation is the term we're all using for this thing, but misappropriation might be better. Yeah, because if you you often hear it just thrown out like oh that's cultural misappropriation. That's like that's a sin. Stop it. Yeah. Uh, where, whereas there's obviously going to be a lot more nuance at play. Yeah. Uh, if you just look at like the Salem Encyclopedia, its entry on cultural appropriation says that it is, quote, the lifting of aspects of one culture or society for use by another culture. Pretty close to what you just said. This can be anything from art to music, 
fashion, etc., sometimes the intermingling creates highly regarded new pieces of work, though, right? And regardless, some argue that the adoption of their culture by outsiders is seen as disrespectful and offensive. So sometimes it's actually defined as, quote, the use of works of indigenous peoples by non-indigenous people. Mm-hmm. So there's a little bit of a distinction there. The concept actually emerged in academia in the late 1970s and 1980s, and it was a critique of colonialism. So you can see why it applies, for instance, to uh, our Western society, American society, or British colonized society. Right. But by the 1990s, it had a solid place in academic discourse. And I can say when I studied for my master's degree between 2006 and 2008, it was a significant part of the literature for rhetoric, cultural studies and communication. I mean, every class I was in, there was at least a section on cultural appropriation and how it fit into the theories and discourse around those ideas. Now, I think one way to help us get started here is to keep in mind what is culture, right? And like that alone is a really hard question to answer. In my mind, when I'm usually just talking about culture casually or on one of these shows, if I don't have a lot of research in front of me, I'm thinking about culture as how people make sense of the world. There's too much of a cacophony of sensory information going on for us as human beings to make sense of. Uh, There's so much happening. Our our brains literally can't keep up. So culture is how we understand all of this stuff. It's basically like a filter, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, and obviously it's way more complicated than that, but some people will say, well, culture is norms or social behavior or materialism or politics or customs and traditions. But let's not forget there's also subcultures as well that exist within larger umbrella ones. The main one that I always think, well, you just brought up hip hop. Hip hop's a good example of mm-hmm. a subculture, but I think of punk is a subculture that exists within Western culture, right? Yeah. Uh, and now the dictionary says culture is, quote, the way of life, especially the general customs and beliefs of a particular group of people at a particular time. And in general, it's used to refer to our use of symbols to represent our experiences, but done in a creative way. Yeah, I, I this is one of those areas where I often come back to this this analogy I keep rolling out of of lenses and uh and while it's it's easy it's easy to think that our view of reality is completely unfiltered by by anything or we might think oh well i'm seeing reality through a single lens you know a single pane of glass that uh that comes down over my space helmet but i feel that all of us have multiple lenses that are employed uh many at the same time and then in various combinations and and so when you try and, yeah, when you try and boil down, well, what is this culture? You end up encountering not one lens, but several. And yeah. some of them may not be employed at all times. Yeah, that's a really interesting way to look at it. And I think, too, and I'll get into this. We'll talk a little bit later about a guy named Gert Hofstad and his sort of cultural theories. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think that is the best way to keep this in mind, that your analogy of lenses essentially is that like different people have their different lenses on, right? And they're not always seeing the same thing. They're understanding those symbols through different experiences. Yeah, and that's important for understanding how we're viewing the world, but also how another individual is looking at the same topic. Yeah. And that's key to this whole entire discussion because it's there's the aspect of how am I interacting with a cultural idea or an artifact but then how is another person looking at that? And then 
And then how are we supposed to uh, have a conversation about it? Yeah, that's the inherent problem in human communication is that there's going to be a misunderstanding no matter what. There's always what's like referred to as psychological noise in verbal mm-hmm. communication, right? We're not telepaths. We're not beaming our thoughts directly into somebody else's head. But through words and the use of other symbols, we're trying to convey meaning back and forth to each other. It's just that our way of understanding that meaning is vastly different, especially depending on what kind of culture you were raised in. All right, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to jump into some examples of uh, sort of positive cultural appropriation, mm-hmm. uh, definite negative examples of uh, cultural appropriation or co- cultural misappropriation, as well as the... Uh, the ever tantalizing gray areas. Mm. Okay, we're back. So before we get into positive and negative examples of cultural appropriation here, I actually have one that I'm concerned about for myself. It's something that I'm working on. Most of our listeners know that I work on. Well, both of us do. We both do fiction mm-hmm. outside of uh, the podcast. I do comics. You do short fiction. Uh, well, You've, you've written long fiction too, right? Yeah, the, the short stuff's the main the main material that's out there, though. And uh, and of course that that means I mean, with both of our work, we're talking about multiple characters, multiple voices, and then yeah. characters of varying uh, uh, ethnicities, uh, cultural backgrounds, etc. Yeah. So I mentioned this actually in the Samurai Sword episode. Uh, I'm working on this project right now, and basically, I recognize that the diversity of race, gender, sexuality, nationality, and age really needs to improve in modern fiction, especially if we want our culture, these artifacts, to represent the world that we live in. This is kind of tricky for a straight, white, middle-aged guy like me. Uh, and I'm working on a new story that's a sci-fi story. It's set in Trinidad, and the majority of the characters are black. It's also going to incorporate elements of Japanese culture into it, including the samurai ethos that we were referring to in, in that other episode. So I'm trying to write this thing, and, and I want to address themes of class and race and violence in it, but I genuinely wonder, am I appropriating somebody else's culture here, right? Like, this is a tricky tightrope. Should I stick to only what I know? Should my characters only be white and American and male, right? Uh, or should I try to improve diversity leading by example through my storytelling. I, I don't know. It's something I like I genuinely worry about. I've done stuff in the past um, where I've had characters of diversity that I've made the focal point of my work. And other stuff I've written have been from characters who are, you know, essentially variations of me. Yeah, I mean, this is always a quandary uh, as, as as a writer, as a, as a creator, probably of, of any form, because uh, there certainly are voices that insist that say, an Amer- an African American perspective should not be approached from a, uh, from a non African American writer. Yeah. So is is a writer then you know forced to exist within the confines of their own culture? And if so, how far does it go? Can Stephen King write about a Southerner? Did uh, did Tennessee raised uh, Cormac McCarthy appropriate the cultures of Mexico and the American West when yeah. he moved out there and started to write westerns? Mm. Uh, yeah, this is the, this is the kind of uh, uh, way that the I think that the modern writer's mind, especially, continues to eat away at, yeah. at yourself. You know, it's like a dog gnawing its own tail. Uh, you're second guessing all of your creative choices. But uh, but I have to I have to say for my own part, like when when I've written, say, I wrote about a, a biracial character in one of my uh, Grave Stompers tales, and it was a it was a slight homage to Joe Christmas and Faulkner's Light in August. But and personally, I always approach a character like that as an attempt to understand another viewpoint. 
uh, you know, to, to respectfully understand how they are viewing the world, what their worldview uh, consists of. And, and, you know, and putting in some research as well, like looking at, yeah. uh, at authentic voices, uh, from those realms to try and create it. I mean, that's part of the exercise. What you, what you don't want to do, in my opinion, is to, is to sort of go the, the old school pro wrestling, uh, you know, route. Yeah. Where, where someone is, is nothing more than the, the archetype. They're nothing more than the stereotype. The caricature. And that's all they are. Yeah, right. Yeah. That's a really good example. Um, the like sort of wrestling characters from like the eighties. Yeah. I'm thinking of like the Iron Sheik here. Yeah. And that guy is kind of still performing that personality. Like, have you ever seen the Iron Sheik's Twitter feed? Yeah. It's though, pretty wild. I understand there's some uh, disagreement on to what extent that is him or oh. people who handle uh, it for him. Oh, but, I didn't know that. Okay. But I don't know a lot of detail about, about that argument. But, uh, Glow on Netflix is, uh, is a big hit yes. right now. And that, that, uh, discusses some similar territory. Yeah, and Glow is fascinating because you see these women come in in the first couple episodes and they have all of these different backgrounds, right? But they are essentially coming to the same project like, what on earth is this? Mm -hmm. Like, they've all got this, like, what, we're going to be female wrestlers, huh? But then the characters that are created for them are totally two-dimensional and kind of grotesque. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so like when I'm thinking about these projects, I think, well, diversity should be improved behind the scenes as well. Right. It doesn't just make up for a lack of diversity to have white people appropriating culture. There, there should be more creators of diversity given a platform. And I was trying to think of recent like examples to do like a, a compare and contrast here. And the two that came up for me was I just started watching the American Gods TV show that's based on that Neil Gaiman novel. Mm -hmm. And it really attempts to tackle the African-American experience. But at the same time, it's based on a book by a white Englishman and it's adapted by a white American. Right. Then I think of a show like Atlanta, which we talked mm -hmm. about in the ironically, we talked about Atlanta in the in the Samurai Sword episode uh, that is written and run by a majority of African-Americans. Is one necessarily better than the other? Is one more authentic than the other? They both, as I'm watching them, I'm getting different things out of them and I'm enjoying the experience. And maybe listeners out there who are engaged in creative projects too have this floating in the back of their head. Like, what am I allowed to engage with? You know? Yeah. All right. Well, let's, let's continue the discussion then by discussing some, 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 first of all, clear positive examples or, or what I'm, I'm presenting as a as a positive example. So one that came to mind instantly is uh, British uh, British singer of Swiss and Greek heritage, Cat Stevens. Oh yeah, uh, he famously converted to Islam mm -hmm. and uh, and became Yusuf Islam. Now clearly, this is a case of an individual entering into another culture's customs and religious worldview with with clear permission to do so. As with Christianity and Buddhism, Islam is a uh, missionary religion with a clear mandate to bring other peoples into the faith. Uh, everyone, it is said, are, are Muslim at birth. So actually, one of the pieces that I turned to for research on this was uh, in The Atlantic, and it was by an author named Jenny Avens. And she argued that without cultural appropriation, we wouldn't have the following things. These are positive examples. New York pizza. Okay. Japanese denim. I didn't know that was a thing. Uh, yeah, I didn't either. And, <laughs> and reading what she was talking about, apparently it's a an older style of denim making. Huh. Okay. Democratic discourse. Hmm. That's interesting. It makes sense. Like democratic discourse came from Greece, but here in yeah. America, we've sort of assumed that it's like our thing, right? You know. <laughs> uh, and then from the Atlantic as well, Connor Friedersdorf 
uh, also had an interesting interview, and he provided the following examples. Imagine a Korean food truck owner who puts beef bulgogi in a burrito. Are they appropriating Mexican culinary culture? Or a Malaysian housewife who rents a kimono when they're on holiday in Kyoto. Is that appropriating traditional Japanese dress? Or a Canadian who writes a novel that's inspired by Cervantes. They're technically appropriating Spanish literary culture. Or an Irish-American who sings opera for a living. They're benefiting from the world's appropriation of Italian art. So there's a lot of complication here, right? It's not as easy as just pointing at Selena Gomez or Miley Cyrus or somebody and saying, stop doing that. Yeah, I mean, the, the culinary example, um, I'm glad you brought that up because I was, I was turning a number of these around in, in my mind. Like, uh, oh, what about the, the Portuguese influence on Thai cuisine? You know, the incorporation of, uh, of peppers, for instance. Right. Or a, a, a better, a more clear cut example, I suppose, would be the French influence on Vietnamese cuisine because there you have a, an even clearer, uh, colonial, uh, influence. Yeah. And of course, this, this leads to an important detail in charges of cultural misappropriation. It's, it's usually the superior power, the colonial force that is charged with misappropriating something. Uh, and the reason should be obvious. I mean, for instance, if you're, if you're a population of, of Africans transposed to, to a Caribbean island and you incorporate aspects of, of the colonial and local culture into your own practices, I mean, that's survival. That falls in line with, uh, with a lot of what we were talking about in our cargo cults episode. Mm. But when the colonist appropriates the culture of a subjugated people, I mean, that's that's where it gets a lot ickier or potentially ickier. Right. OK. So, yeah, I'm seeing that as like definitely like a hallmark for these cases that are brought up with outrage. Right. Mm-hmm. Is that usually it's if somebody who is from a colonial culture is appropriate again indigenous versus non-indigenous right um one of my favorite books of all time is a graphic novel called pride of baghdad it's about lions that escape the zoo after the americans bombed baghdad in 2003 and the lions throughout the story they essentially become symbols for us to see different versions of the war through it's written by brian k vaughn is drawn by nico henrican neither of them are iraqi but this modern folktale really made me Think about the Iraqi experience differently. I think about, uh, this is a non-colonial example. Japanese post-rock bands, I, I like Mono and the band Boris. Uh, these musicians adapt Western styles of rock. They come up with something that's totally new and kind of wonderful in the process. I'd never dream of referring to Boris as cultural appropriation, right? Mm-hmm. But arguably it is. It's just because... Japan is not a colonizer of the United States. We don't really think of it that way. In fact, part of why I think I like it so much is the multiculturalism to it. And I think we'd be remiss if we didn't recognize one of the major examples that comes up over and over again in the literature is that white people have been accused of appropriating rock from African-American culture. Oh, yeah. Uh, and then you and I were trying to we were talking earlier before we went on air. What, like, what's a great positive example of the sort of colonizer white vanilla guy really doing a great job uh, representing another culture. And you said David Simon, the guy who created The Wire and Treme. Yeah, yeah, this has come up a lot in uh, in some of the, 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 the resources we were looking at for this episode. And I think the reason that it is often brought up as a good example is because David Simon and the, the teams that he assembles, they tend to approach these topics with... Uh, you know, out, out of a sense of wanting to understand a very em- empathic, uh, journalistic, uh, mission in mind. 
Yeah. Yeah. I think that's important. Uh, and as we go through these examples, it becomes clearer to me that, that part of it is like in actually engaging with the culture that you're influenced by or appropriating, right? Like engaging with that and not just the artifact, mm-hmm. uh, that goes a long way. Now, that being said, I do have to, I do have to, uh, to throw out there that I know that David Simon does, uh, make an effort to bring in members of, um, of, of cultures that are, that are depicted in his shows because I remember him talking about the wire and, uh, towards the end and saying that if they were going to do another season, they would have to incorporate, uh, like another racial demographic of Baltimore oh, and okay. that they, they did not have anybody, uh, on the team that had, uh, had expertise or knowledge or, or participation in that culture. Yeah. I was going to say, oh, I can't remember this character's name. There's like a preacher on the show. And I want to say like the real life version of him is in the writer's room for that show Ooh, or was in the writer's room. I don't recall offhand. I can't but remember his name. I'm, I'm sure some wire fans will, uh, will, will point, will answer that question for us. So then let, let's look at some really clear negative examples. Uh, and this, again, maybe where some people sort of react defensively and say, what? I, how is that, how is that negative? The, most people agree the adaptation of Native American garments in the fashion industry, uh, isn't seen in a positive light. Mm-hmm. Uh, so in a brief period of time in the last couple of years, we had Victoria's Secret feature a model wearing a feathered headdress and turquoise jewelry in a fashion show. Then at the same time, Michelle Williams was criticized for wearing braids and feathers in a magazine photo shoot, and contestants on Germany's Next Top Model also did a photo shoot wearing headdresses uh, and Native American-style clothing. Uh, and Native American writer Jessica Metcalf actually points out in The Guardian, she says, quote, Our cultures have been reduced to nothing more than patterns on a shirt. I think this is a good point. This is again, it's the culture is about understanding the world through these symbols, but when their symbolic meaning is completely discarded, they're divested of that power, right? And the, mm-hmm. the meaning is lost then. So why engage with it other than just like, I like feathers or I like turquoise, you know? Yeah. Or, or it, to what extent is that even, are you engaging with it? Are you, are yeah. you, you're not really engaging with it at all if you're just taking it on as a hollowed out superficial thing. It's especially viewed as worse because these, Artifacts have spiritual and ceremonial significance to them, too. So I think like maybe looking at this example, it seems that cultural appropriation is, quote unquote, worse when it's done for commercial purposes. So we've got sort of two hallmarks here, the colonial one and a commercial one. Mm-hmm. In this sense, for instance, fashion businessman Oscar Metsavit, uh, I think that's how you say his name, Metsavhat, uh, gave royalties from his 2016 spring collection to the Ashanika tribe uh, that these clothes were inspired by. Uh, they also contributed to public awareness about the tribe's struggle with illegal loggers. This was uh, in Brazil. So, you know, th- he's clearly like trying to uh, put out any fires, I guess, ahead of time because right. he knew like he had a commercial product essentially and that he could be criticized for it. Now, if that was uh, a clear negative example that had some, uh, perhaps some wiggle room for, for some people to say, well, I don't understand. Uh, you know, I need that explained to me a little more why that's offensive. I feel like the next one should be pretty, pretty clear cut. You think so. And yet there's so many, oh, there's so many examples of this one still be, being used. So blackface mm-hmm. is essentially like the big no, no, right? Uh, and, and this is where I think it gets important too. Like, is that cultural appropriation or is that just, making fun of race or ethnicity you know well yeah it's i guess it's 
it tends to be the, 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 the most unrefined example of just blatant, um, mockery. And yeah. you have to ask yourself, to what degree is this energy present in more diluted amounts in other uh, acts of uh, alleged cultural misappropriation? Exactly. I mean, really, any dressed up perpetuation of an ethnic stereotype is going to be bad here. Right. Don't make fun of someone else's culture or ethnicity. Don't treat it like a joke. Right. Mm-hmm. You remember this from our previous Halloween episode that we did must be two years ago now. Uh, there's a kind of enclosed performance that happens around that holiday. Another example of this is, for instance, when uh, white people think that Dio de los Muertos is Mexican Halloween and they wear skull face paint. Uh, they don't even consider sometimes the cultural implications of the actual tradition. And Connor Friedersdorf, again, he has a good quote about this. He says, a white college student who dons blackface is not engaging with African-American culture. He or she is just caricaturing physical features of another race. The act is offensive partially because it's reducing people to the color of their skin. Uh, my example that I came out from this recently, I, I mentioned this, I think, in a previous episode. I'm rereading It this summer, mm-hmm. uh, Stephen King's It, in anticipation of the new movie. I had forgotten how racist some of the characters in that are. Oh, yeah. uh, the Richie Tozier character puts on, like, a, quote, black character voice in the book. Huh. Uh, and it completely pulls me out of the story every time it happens. I don't think Stephen King is racist. I don't think he was making fun of eth- ethnicity. I think he was probably trying to critique the era that he grew up in, the 1950s, when something like Amos and Andy was acceptable, right? It still feels super culturally weird to read that today. I can't imagine in that movie the kid from Stranger Things is playing Richie Tozier. Oh, yeah. I can't imagine they're going to have him repeat those lines when he plays that character. Oh, especially the since they, aren't they updating the, the backstory to the 80s? Yeah, so, yeah. they are. Yeah, they're going to be in the 80s, and I think the modern version will be in, in present day. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Jonathan Blanks was interviewed in The Atlantic, and he says, there's nothing wrong with adopting terms like, was up as they come into white pop culture through various media. But there's a difference between the natural assimilation of language and black imitation as a caricature. Yeah. Obviously yellow face is another example of this. Yeah. And I, the big, the big, like just cringeworthy example. I mean, at least cringeworthy is, um, breakfast at Tiffany's wonderful right. film, except you have this this horrible character played by Mickey Rooney, Mickey Rooney playing um, a, a Chinese-American in the most stereotypical way possible. Yeah. Uh, just blatantly offensive to to, 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 to modern viewers of the film uh, and, and some contemporary viewers of the film as well, if you look back at, uh, at, at some of the reviews. But again, there's this, there's not an attempt to really understand this person or to embody this character as anything other than a mockery. You know, another one that I had forgotten about from our uh, childhood adolescence, Twin Peaks. Yeah. I had completely forgotten about this. Uh, there's a character who does yellow face in that. Uh, oh. Catherine at one point uh, pretends to have died. Spoilers for the. But now I haven't, I haven't seen it yet. You've never seen the original, I've never seen the original Twin Peaks. Oh, well, okay. I won't go too far with it, but as long as you don't spoil who done it, I'm, uh, there, I'm fine. Oh, I, yeah, yeah, I won't go there, but. There is a character who dresses up like a Chinese man, uh, and it's super offensive. And when you watch it now, you realize like, oh, this was David Lynch making a commentary on Americans and racism, right? It wasn't uh-huh. like David Lynch was being racist, but it is 
extraordinarily weird to watch something like that or read something like it that, you know, I, I was consuming when I was a kid and not really recognizing, oh, hey, this is this is wrong. There's something yeah. not quite right here. So Jenny Avens, again, in her article, she argues that we shouldn't just engage with the culture on an aesthetic level. Uh, it was put another way, actually, by an actress named Amanda Stenberg. She was in The Hunger Games, and she said in a video that was actually very much criticized, what would America be like if we loved black people as much as we love black culture? Nicki Minaj, of all people, actually echoed this. Her point was basically don't cherry pick cultural elements without engaging their creators as a part of a process of understanding the world from a different perspective than yours. And this is where it gets interesting. You see a lot of these contrasting viewpoints. In 2013, NPR actually did a story about how young Americans don't identify hip hop with race. They actually think that that culture is now possibly seen as global uh, because you can see it as far away as places like Korea and Russia. At the same time, others are arguing, well, when you culturally devalue black people, that subsequently paves the way for violence against them, right? Mm -hmm. As we're seeing in so many cases of uh, incidents in which police are shooting young black men. Okay, so let's talk a a little more about gray areas here um, briefly. So as always, you know, the gray area is only as gray as the critic paints it. So if it helps, think of think of these as less as gray areas, but areas of question, areas of possibility even as we discuss them and as you discuss them and think about them in your own lives, uh, places where the the charge of cultural appropriation or misappropriation become less clear. So one example that comes to my mind, uh, a video was making the rounds recently on social media in which a group of Caucasian women performed a traditional African dance in presumably traditional costume. Now, as is often the case with social media content, any context was completely lacking here. Uh, we didn't, we were not told who these uh, women were, mm. why they were doing it, where they were doing it even. There was no, no, no clue at all. The message is in the hand of the sharer and then in the, in the commentator. Now, a number of commentators on this video, when I was looking at it, they, they strongly condemned the footage saying that it was, a uh, you know, just a blinding example of cultural misappropriation. Uh, a few, uh, uh, commentators, however, pointed out that we didn't know to what extent these women had permission to engage in this dance and really what the spirit of their performance was. It it did not. I mean, they certainly were not wearing blackface. It did not seem to have comedic um, aspects to it. But we just simply don't know. In short, did they do it to mock anybody? Did they do it to engage in a surface level experience or was it part of a deeper effort to understand? Is there honor and, st- and understanding there? Is there permission there? So essentially context is important here. Yeah. I, I feel like, I mean, again, it, it, it kind of depends on the commentator yeah. uh, here and who is making the charge of cultural misappropriation. And they're going to go to varying extremes in making that charge. Um, an- another example that came to mind. Big Trouble in Little China. Yeah, this one, when you put this in the notes, I immediately, like, a light bulb went on over my head. I was like, oh, yeah. Like, I, again, an, a thing from our childhood never even occurred to me as a kid that that would be any in, in any way offensive to somebody. Yeah, and this is, I have to say, this is uh, this has always been one of my, my favorite films. Uh, but it's a film, and it's a, you know, film I've, I've always loved. But it is a film uh, by a group of Western Caucasian filmmakers. Now, it does it does invoke Chinese martial arts movie stereotypes. But on the other hand, it does feature a large Chinese-American cast. 
It plays with its stereotypical, uh, stereotypical characters to some degree and even counters some stereotypes uh, within key characters. Plus, while it certainly plays fast and loose um, Hollywood style with Chinese mythology, it does seem to try reasonably hard to incorporate some key elements there. So in my current experience of the movie, I'm inclined to appreciate it within those parameters and see it as a net positive expression. But I also understand that uh, other individuals might take a different view. I have a hard time imagining Big Trouble in Little China getting made the same way today. Now, I know like there's been rumors that they're like they're going to remake it with a rock or something mm-hmm. like that. Uh, but I just I, I can't imagine that it's going to engage with Chinese culture in the same way, because that, like, again, I'm bringing this up twice in a week. Transformers, uh, <laughs> whatever the whatever number five that I saw this weekend, which, uh-huh. like, don't get me wrong. I, I have a problem. and <laughs> I go see all those movies in the theater, but they are really offensive at some points and how they appropriate culture. And there's like a uh Basically, like a, a Japanese stereotype transformer that like dresses like a samurai and has a katana and has um oh, I can't remember the actor's name. Wait, isn't it a Tokyo Drift based car transformer? It might too? be. Yeah, it's some sports car okay. I don't recognize. But he, it, it's a Japanese actor performing this character, but it's like super offensive in the same way that like some of those Star Wars aliens were seen as being like caricatures as well. Uh huh. Uh, and they had another one in this, in this recent one that was French. And they were like, oh yeah, can Transformers be French? And somebody says, oh no, he's not actually French. He just, he's just pretending to be French. Like he really <laughs> likes French culture. And I was like, this is like, I mean, there's so many things about those movies <laughs> that are confounding, but yeah, any statement it tries to make about ethnicity or culture, I w- wouldn't take with a whole lot of grain of salt. <laughs> All right, well, let's take another break. And when we come back, let's get a little more into the case against uh, cultural misappropriation. All right, we're back. All right, so let's look at cases against and cases for this. Now, Bell Hooks actually said about this topic, and we're talking about cases against here, quote, ethnicity becomes a spice, a seasoning that can liven up the dull dish that is mainstream white culture. Uh, in the New York Times, Paul Segal actually argues that cultural appropriation is actually about America's original sins, where its origins are bound up in, quote, theft and colonization. This gets back to what we were talking about earlier with mm-hmm. some of those negative examples. It really seems like the colonization aspect and the commercial aspect are the two big no-nos here, right? Uh, so if you're, if you're combining the two, it's even worse. Right. Yeah, I mean, I, we always come back to the idea, oh, America's a melting pot. Yeah. But did everyone want to go into the pot? And <laughs> to what extent is the pot proportionally stirred? Right. Yeah, it's, that's a fair question. Connor Friedersdorf actually argues that the claims of uh, cultural appropriation are actually objectionable if there's an underlying animus, dis, or dehumanization to them. That's his words, not mine. The problem becomes when this is conflated with cultural appropriation that's seen as absurd. So, for instance, the example he gives is, if a college cafeteria serves sushi, uh, and God somebody... God help you, for starters. Well, yeah, I mean, you'd probably get sick, but... <laughs> but his example is basically, like, somebody could find that as a case of cultural appropriation. And then somebody else would see that as being absurd as being a conflation right of if if you saw that as cultural appropriation so this is where you get into this like sort of 
battle between whether or not something is or isn't offensive. Uh, and it gets worse when the conflation backfires, then all examples are considered absurd. So, for instance, even when something's malicious, like the fraternity party uh, where everybody's wearing blackface, for example, right? right? Uh, and I just realized as I was doing the research for this and I had this moment where I was just like, oh, uh, that uh, you could use this. This is basically cannon fodder for content creation on the Internet, right, for digital media outlets. Like, without engaging with the larger question in any manner like we're trying to do today, it's basic. Anytime an incident like this happens, it's just, all right, that's a perfect 500-word piece that we can just, like, spit out there and get people to click on, right? Like, Mm -hmm. if we feign outrage over something. Uh, or we feign outrage over somebody else's outrage. I mean, you, you see this everywhere. It's it's so much of what I think makes a uh, Facebook probably uh, intolerable right now. Yeah, and then commenting or critiquing another individual's outrage. And to what degree is that outrage appropriate? Right. So I think what we're finding here is this is essentially a problem with language, right? That we're not using words accurately to describe the differences between something like racism and cultural appropriation. And the example I think of, uh, and when you first brought up this topic to me, it came to mind was Patton Oswald has this great comedy bit about this on Netflix. Uh, the special is called Talking for Clapping. Mm-hmm. He jokes about the difference between terminology versus listening to someone's heart on the difference between their words and their intent. And he does these these sort of caricature characters. You know, one person is using all the exact right terms, uh, but they're. What they're saying, the content of what they're saying is offensive right. versus like somebody who doesn't know the exact right terminology, but they mean well. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's probably this is where I think is a good point to mention Gert Hofstede and his cultural dimensions theory. Now, the idea here, we could do a whole episode on this, but I'm going to try to boil it down quickly. He breaks down cultural factors in communication and how they contribute to miscommunication. And there's Five factors that he, he's pointing us to here. Power distance, individualism versus collectivism, uncertainty avoidance, masculinity versus femininity, and long-term versus short-term orientation. Now, I'm not 100% a per- proponent of his theory, but I, I recognize, I think he's kind of on the right track here of looking at how different cultures communicate and understanding one another differently And basically, the idea here is to ensure that the symbols themselves aren't misunderstood, communicators need to be cognizant of the factors themselves, right? The way he actually does it, he will he breaks them up by nation, which I think is probably part of the problem here, because I don't think one nation necessarily has a culture per se, right? To say, like, American culture uh, doesn't recognize, like, so many of the subcultures within it, right? Oh, yeah, to – I think to – to, to to boil down another nation to a singular, you know, monolithic culture is generally to betray a, a very incomplete idea of of who these people are. Yeah. And so I think that might be why a lot of the examples we're seeing in the literature here come from mass media. The communicators themselves aren't actually targeting like a single audience. So they're subsequently unintentionally offensive to people that they just forgot about that would be part of this mass broadcast right Mm -hmm. um yeah i mean countless examples i don't think when uh selena gomez puts on a bindi or um what what did katie perry do did she have cornrows i think that was what people uh i think that was the example oh she was egyptian in in one oh yeah that's right i don't know that dark horse 
it, the Egyptian culture is an interesting example too, because we'll, we, as we'll get into it, we'll discuss the idea of like what happens if a culture is not appropriated and it runs the risk of becoming outdated. Yeah, it kind of runs the risk of becoming something like Egyptian culture, which not to say that you right. could not misappropriate ancient Egyptian uh, uh, iconography or dress in a way that would offend someone, but given the distance, given the time, given the the fact that the the ideas of the ancient Egyptians did not travel well even during their time, much less into modern times. Right. Um it makes it a little safer for some for say a pop singer to to utilize. I haven't seen that new Tom Cruise mummy movie. I can't imagine that it is uh in any way portraying Egyptian culture well, uh in a in a positive way. I mean light. It, it like I say it tends to be this this safe zone. Right. For, or or yeah. relatively safe, at least you know compared to so many things. I mean, we still have mummy movies. Right. We've talked before about how kind of weird it is that we have these tales about uh, these bodies that were stolen from, from tombs by, by colonial powers. And they come to life and start killing people. And, and for the most part, like no serious self-examination is, is conducted. Yeah. Yeah. Well, right. And again, so like, I think all of this comes back to like a matter of semantics and language yeah. and kind of paying attention to what you're saying and what you're doing and, and probably where the term misappropriation needs to be clarified and used instead of appropriation. Now, another notable area here that, um, that, 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 that factors into our discussion concerns American sports teams and uh, the use of Native American stereotypes as mascots. Now, certainly this is a, this is a, a whole discussion unto itself. But what's interesting here for the purposes of our discussion is that uh, is that there was a study that was published in the Journal of Consumer Psychology uh, by a team of researchers from the University of Montana, the University of Washington and Washington State University. And they set out to empirically test the use of American Indian brand imagery and how it increases uh, stereotype beliefs in the broader population. And they wanted to see uh, what kind of impact uh, the brands would have on uh, both negative and positive stereotypes. So examples here would be Indians are warlike versus Indians are noble. So it's the noble savage stereotype. Right. That kind of, yeah, uh, then the idea that it, these are the two pre- predominant uh, stereotypes and these are the only two that can exist when you're doing just such a surface level understanding of another culture. Yeah. So. Interestingly enough, they found that while conservative individuals that they tested, they did not change their opinion about Native Americans upon seeing such imagery. Uh, liberal individuals were far more malleable, uh, and they were affected by the, both positive and negative stereotypes. And this apparently falls in line with previous studies that have revealed that, uh, that liberal individuals tend to have more malleable worldviews and are therefore sometimes more sensitive to contextual clues. So uh, I have a great example of this. We live in Atlanta, Georgia. Mm-hmm. Uh, have you ever gone to see the Braves play? No. Yeah, it's not my thing, but a couple of coworkers at a job previous to this mm-hmm. took me to a Braves game. And the, do you know about this? The Tomahawk Chop? Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I, sir, I'm familiar enough with it to know that. That's where you, you chop your arm. Yeah, in the air. so yeah. like there's a certain point during the game where, the, you know, the crowd gets excited in support of the home team, the mm-hmm. Atlanta Braves, and they do this tomahawk chop thing where they like use their arms like their tomahawks that they're like bringing them down on the skulls of their opponent. And there's actually like a, I, I don't even know what it is, like a robot, like animatronic thing that kind of comes out and swings the tomahawk and everything. Huh. And I remember the first time I saw that just being like, Whoa, like <laughs> what is happening here? This is super offensive. Um, but again, that might just be like my predilections, right? Like, uh, I just saw it as being like, okay, this is the, uh, 
the savage stereotype being brought out to play here. Now, they uh, had a separate field study as well, and the researchers also found that exposure to a, quote, more negative ethnic logo, a significantly strengthened negative stereotypes among uh, liberal individuals, while exposure to the less negative logo did not significantly influence negative stereotypes uh, at any level of political identity. So where does all this fit into our conversation here? Well, I think one of the things that's interesting is that it reveals that one can interact with such artifacts of cultural appropriation without necessarily thinking about them, without (laughs) certainly without engaging with them, but also not realizing why they could be offensive. And uh, it also is interesting to see how malleable worldviews can cut both ways. So the very... The very, the, the very aspect of your psyche that makes you, uh, more willing to, to see the situation from another individual's side and to shift your worldview, uh, accordingly, uh, that can also, uh, lead to the, to the less desirable effect that you're in, right. influenced then by bits of negative stereotyping, uh, and, and, you know, negative cultural, uh, misappropriation. So this is actually part of the sort of factor of leading to the whole, like, is it absurd? Is it not absurd? Yeah. Should it be blamed? Should it not be blamed? So, yeah, there's so many complex factors here. Now, let's look at some of the cases for cultural appropriation and see if we can get anything more out of them. Uh, sometimes it's seen as being positive when it's seen as appreciation and influence rather than appropriation. Also, when creators seek permission from the person or culture they're appropriating a, a from or they're paying homage to the artistry, then it gets complicated. How do you know who you're supposed to ask? Like this whole thing gets into intellectual property. I found so many uh, articles about intellectual property and ownership of cultural artifacts and that there's actual legal precedent for culture being copyrighted in certain cases too. Huh. Um, and Jenny Avens argues in that Atlantic piece that cultural appropriation is actually a result of globalization. So subsequently, it's inevitable, but it's also ultimately positive in her mind. It's an exchange of ideas, styles and traditions, and it's showcasing the joy of living in a multicultural society. Susan Scafidi wrote a book that is called Who Owns Culture, Appropriation and Authenticity in American Law? And she says that culture shouldn't freeze itself in time as if it's like part of a museum diorama. She actually argues cultural appropriation can save cultural products from fading away. And Pakistani novelist Camilla Shamsi called for more, not less, imaginative engagement with her country. She says, quote, The moment you say a male American writer can't write about a female Pakistani, you are saying, don't tell these stories. And even worse, you're saying, as an American male, you can't understand a Pakistani woman. She is enigmatic, inscrutable, and unknowable. Therefore, she's other. Leave her and her nation to its otherness. Write them out of your history. Uh, I ran across a a wonderful article in Ian Magazine. No surprise. They, They come up pretty frequently here. Nabila Jaffer uh, makes some really good points in the article, Is Nothing Sacred?, in which he discusses, among other things, the experience of seeing non-Sufi Muslims take up uh, the the dervish whirling. Oh, okay. He talks about, you know, the, the origins of this custom and then what it's like to see it uh, it practiced by by non-Muslims in, say, uh, uh, West London. Okay. 
And, and you know, it's hard to, to see it as anything other than a, like a hollowed out portion of someone's culture. But he also points out that, quote, religions and cultures and indeed nations have survived only by being open to new ways of representing themselves and that the survival and spread of a culture's core values come at a price. And the alternative uh, to paying that price is sometimes fossilization. Uh, uh, your, your culture just becomes irrelevant. So this is, again, like plays right into that whole American gods thing. Essentially, the, the thesis of American gods as a TV show and a novel is that these gods are are representations of cultures and they either become fossilized and are forgotten and subsequently die or they incorporate themselves somehow into these new cultures. Yeah, like uh, belly dancing comes to mind as a as a, as a potential uh, you know area to ask questions like this. But yeah. one that's uh, maybe a little more related to to you and me, uh, yoga. I think it fits nicely in here because yes. you have a practice with roots in India, but a practice that has undergone heavy alter alteration by Western practitioners and continues to undergo alteration as it takes takes on various forms. Uh, sometimes increasingly secular forms, uh, other forms that reinforce spiritual concepts, concepts that. That might uh, that you might argue were misappropriated as well. Mm -hmm. uh, but if the core physical practice improves the human experience, then isn't it worth the adaptation? Uh, that's what I'm asking. In, 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 and can't the same be said of meditation and various spir spiritual models? As long as there is a you know an openness there and a an honesty in its use. So there is actually an article in the Boston Globe that came up about this. Uh, about yoga specifically and whether it was cultural appropriation. The tone of this article is a little bit more confrontational than I'm really willing to engage with here. But essentially, the author was pushing back because there was an accusation that Western practitioners of yoga were ignoring colonialism and the oppression of where the practice originated from. Uh, and his pushback was similar to what you said, which is essentially like, well, if the practice is uh, beneficial to mankind, shouldn't we do it anyway? Yeah, I, I think that at times, uh, I'm, I'm certainly not trying to, to boil all this down to this one question, but I think sometimes we have to ask ourselves, is there a legacy of horror here? Mm. And uh, and the answer, no matter where you are in life or culture, is almost always yes. Uh, and again, that's not not to blanketly forgive any cultural transgression, uh, but maybe it's simply important to on some level acknowledge the legacy of horror in everything we do. Uh, and I realize that sounds a, a bit dark even for us, but, <laughs> but, you know, it, it, it kind of falls in line with what we've been talking here. Like be, be prepared to, uh, to slip on the horror lens from time to time, if only for a moment, if only to ground your present choices, beliefs, and privileges, uh, you know, in, in a, in, in an appropriate frame of reference. Uh, that's my personal uh, take on it anyway. Yeah. So, you know, we're winding up here. I, I think. Uh, that, you know, the research looking at this, it helped me a little bit with my question in terms of like the work that I'm creating, mm -hmm. but also in terms of, you know, what are things that I should be offended by or, or things that I maybe should question out loud versus other things where sometimes, like I said, there's lots of content created on the internet about this because it's fuel for the fire and it gets ad clicks. So, you know, is this worth clicking on? Yeah. Is this headline worth engaging with or should I just skip right past it? Yeah. So hopefully we've provided you with some additional insight here and some additional tools uh, for you to just figure out where you stand on all of this and and to understand where other people uh, are falling on on the topic of cultural appropriation and cultural misappropriation. Yeah. And I have to say, uh, as a fan of the show, before I joined the show, 
Robert does a really good job on StuffToBlowYourMind.com of incorporating a lot of different cultures into our examination of sciences and philosophy over the last, what is it now, six, seven years that the show's been going on for? Uh, yeah, I believe so, something like that. Yeah, so if you visit StuffToBlowYourMind.com, you're just going to find a lot of really interesting insights and in, that are connected to what we were talking about here today. And not only that, we've got all, these are from our blog posts, our podcast episodes, videos that we've done. And then you've also got uh, links out to all of our social accounts if you want to interact with us about this topic. There are links to our Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Tumblr on there. That's right. Uh, hey, if you listen to us on Apple Podcasts, drop by there. Give us a, a, a strong review. Help us out there with the algorithm. And if you just want to get in touch with us directly, share your uh, take on this hot topic, then just email us at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.